Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm once again joined by Dr. Lalith Vijay Duru. He's a consultant pediatrician and independent well-being consultant. He was with us last week where we discussed his background, the concept of storytelling as a tool for healthcare and other situations, physician burnout, and the importance of human connection. As a reminder, Lal obtained his medical degree from University College London Medical School and specialized in pediatric emergency medicine. He also obtained a master's in tropical pediatrics at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine and has clinical and research interests in global child health and the recognition of child abuse in, in healthcare settings is one of his interests. He's also the founder of Behind Your Mask, a company that focuses on workplace-based storytelling. And today we're going to discuss his views on well-being. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Lalith Vijay Doru. Thank you, Jonathan. Back for more. <laughs> so now, let's start with the definition. What does well-being mean to you? Oh, I get asked this quite a lot. And I think well-being is about your relationship with yourself. Think about it as me, myself, and I. And I know people think that might be indulgent, but indulge me, please. It's a really a complex interplay between three concepts. And I think these concepts are your mind, your body, and your soul. But I have to be clear that these three concepts are so inextricably linked with each other. It's really artificial to separate them out like I have, but you know, we're all healthcare professionals. We like to classify things. So here I am classifying things. So if I have to translate mind, body, and soul into aspects of well-being, I would say that your mind equates to your emotional well-being, your body, your physical well-being, and your soul, your spiritual well-being. So ultimately, this, this, these three Venn diagrams of mind, body, and soul is about respecting and loving yourself. Respecting and loving yourself. Yeah, people talk a lot, don't they, about being kind to yourself. Um, I know I have a habit of you know, if I get something wrong, I'll just sort of mumble to myself, you idiot. And I've been told that's not a good thing. It, uh, it gets you thinking negatively. Using that as a segue, what are the things that positively and negatively impact our well-being beyond smoking or not exercising or whatever? I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned the words positive and negative. So I, I try to think about it in terms of things that energize us, so energizes, and things that drain us, the drainers. And um, it's important to think about what energizes and drains us and in our workplace, as well as in your own home environment. And the other thing to think about is we are all individuals. We need to find out what individually energizes and drains us. And we have a good idea of what the menu of energizers and drainers are. It's like choosing a, off a menu at the restaurant. We need to have an awareness of what things are good and what works for us. So the things that are commonly on the menu, as I, you've already alluded to, in terms of energizers, exercise, including sports, film, holidays, music, reading for pleasure, friends, family, pets, you know, these are all things that, that give us positive energy. And then, of course, the things that drain us, you know, we've already mentioned in the previous podcast about um, burnout, chronic excessive workload, our diet, social media and screen time is an increasingly big drain on us. The thing is about, about healthcare professionals is that they think they've got, they're, they're infallible. So not taking a break, not taking a holiday, even their full holiday entitlement, dysfunction in the workplace, harassment, bullying, 
And this could be within your home environment as well as in the workplace. So these are the things that, that drain us. And I think when we have to think about well-being, we have to think about that balance. We will inevitably have things in our home and our work that will drain us. It is our responsibility to make sure that we counterbalance them or even more um, uh, overbalance them with things that energize us. Yeah, all great points, Lal. And, you know, you talk about walking. It's not just the physical exercise. It's the, you know, I find that I go for a walk on a beach or through woods or hills and, you know, you're surrounded by natural beauty. It's inspiring. So it's good for the soul as well as the body. So what led to your interest in well-being? Interesting. Um, I did an after-dinner speech um, with a group of obstetric anaesthetists, and I was thinking, how am I going to frame this to them? And um, I thought, okay, the commonest cause of death in mothers in the UK is venous thromboembolic disease. And so I thought about Verkoff's triad, about what causes clots. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to frame this in in a triad, but I'm going to talk about my own Uh, triad. So my triad is adversity, creativity, and humanity. So I think my own adversity, I think adversity makes you sensitive to the needs of others. I've always been interested in the welfare of others. So I was uh, at UCL, I was the student welfare officer, um, and I took a year off to stand for election and to and to be a student welfare officer. And um, my adverse childhood experience, I had a, a parent with bipolar depression, with alcohol addiction. There was domestic violence and physical and emotional abuse at home. And so, you know, that was very, very formative. In my NHS career, my adversity has included racial discrimination, harassment and bullying, moral distress or moral injury. And then, of course, all the things that we've spoken about in burnout, like the winter pressures, you know, high profile media cases you know, the global pandemic, you know, crises like Black Lives Matter. And of course, you know, not being touched during the the pandemic, during social distancing, I experienced skin hunger. So I think adversity is really important for breeding creativity and innovation. And uh, using my own skills, so uh, I love music and music has been a real escape and a way that I've communicated with people. And um, I'm an amateur pianist and I connect with people as as a performer. And um, during the pandemic, I was using musical storytelling for my senior colleagues to keep us connected during the times of social distancing. And I've always had an interest in in languages and history and reading and stories, clearly. So coming into my third point of humanity, I had to think, how do I take my previous adversity and my creativity and channel, channel those towards something good? And that's why well-being came in, actually looking at well-being of individuals, well-being of teams, and also the well-being of communities. And of course, doing podcasts like this allows me to kind of reach out and send those messages of well-being uh, to a wider population and to a wider listenership. So um, that's why I got interested in well-being. Um, and it's the adversity combined with my creativity towards doing something for humanity. That's all fascinating stuff. And I'd like to make this personal. Tell us about your approach to physical well-being. And by the way, I saw a post you had made about walking in Cornwall, reminding people how beautiful the British countryside was. And a year or so ago, I did part of the Southwest um, Coastal Path uh, walk. And as I said earlier, it really is nourishing for the the soul uh, as well as the body. You just feel for people who haven't tried it, boy, do I recommend it. So yeah, you, you and physical well-being. Well, I, I um, agree with your point. I'm, I, I do 
I work on a well-being retreat for doctors organized by a, a lovely colleague called Joe Hacking, who does a, a retreat on an organic farm in Berkshire. And I call her the wise woman of the forest because she almost connects the people on, on this retreat with nature, looking with sharing her knowledge of birds and, and, uh, and the waterways and the foliage. It's, it's amazing. So I absolutely believe connecting with nature is very important as well. So in terms of my own body, I was reaching burnout when I was towards the end of my training in pediatric emergency medicine. And um, I was experiencing harassment and bullying at work. And unfortunately, this led me to stress eat significantly. And I probably gained about 10 kilos and I weighed about 100. I weighed 110 kilos towards the end of my training because I was stress eating so much because of the emotional impact of, of my work. And um, the, there, was, there was a light bulb moment. It wasn't in the form of a story. It was the form of a photograph. I, there was a photograph of me with my university friend at her 40th birthday. And I looked at myself and I was like, oh, dear, something has got to change. And so um, before taking up a, 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 my consultant job in Liverpool, I decided to go on a mind, body and soul focus. And the start of that was to go to a military-style boot camp for two weeks in Northumberland, which involved exercising in nature in the fantastic coast of, of Northumberland. And so after that boot camp, I learned something. I learned something about my diet. I learned things about incorporating exercise into my daily routine. And I have continued that ever since. So I like to do high-intensity interval training. I like to swim. I swim most days in a place close to my, uh, in a public pool. Um, I do yoga at 7 a.m., online with a group of men and in terms of I, I walk everywhere I deliberately don't have a car for environmental reasons but also for health reasons so I walk everywhere uh, where I live in London and also use the city cycle schemes and um, and of course physical well-being also in, involves touch and so I retrained as a massage therapist after my experience of skin hunger during the pandemic and I give and receive massage to celebrate the physiological importance of touch. Tell us a little bit more about physical touch. I mean, we all, you know, people enjoy intimacy. They enjoy holding hands. They enjoy shaking hands, you know, giving a hug when you meet someone. And obviously the COVID pandemic caused social isolation, especially for people who lived on their own. Tell us about the importance of touch. Where does it come from, you know, from um, an evolutionary standpoint? Wax lyrical. I'm a I'm a pediatrician. When babies are born, the first thing that, of course, you have to dis, um, you know, the baby has to come out of, of the birth canal, but put the baby on the breast. And why do they say this? Is because the importance of physical touch in terms of attachment and bonding. You know, as primates, we absolutely have to understand the importance of skin, and skin and skin contact is essential in terms of maternal and paternal child bonding. And so, of course, I'm I'm all about. The, I'm the pediatrician advocating breastfeeding. So, if we have to um, maximize touch in order to do that, so be it. But for me personally, um, uh, and also going back to pediatrics, um, I loved pediatrics because it's a very tactile, hands-on job. In pediatric emergency medicine, children will, and in pediatrics in general, children will clamber all over you. <laughs> and, um, you know, you are touched all the time. It's a very sensory spe a clinical specialty. And so 
during the, the pandemic, when we were distanced from our patients, we're wearing PPE and separated from our colleagues. Suddenly, the, the, the clinician like myself, who normally lives alone, who normally gets touched a lot at work and also touched a lot socially, suddenly I couldn't do this anymore. And so there was a three-month period from not being touched where I actually became physically unwell, that actually being deprived of this nourishing phenomenon of touch actually made me feel like I was in drug withdrawal and I was having symptoms of night sweats. I was having hallucinations. I was having um, tremors. It was like being in, in, in drug withdrawal. And um, as lockdown measures were, were lifted, um, I thought that when I could suddenly have a bubble and actually touch somebody, I thought that I would be like a starving child at a buffet and that I would just kind of attack the food and just scoff themselves silly. But actually, the reality of what, what it was, was that I just wanted somebody to hold me. It was almost like being that newborn baby. I was being born again, this newborn baby out of a birth canal, just being put on mother's breast and held. That's what it was. It was like a new birth experience. So that's where I, I, I feel very strongly about the importance of physical touch. I retrained as a massage therapist to deliver that kind of touch. Yeah. Hey, listen, we could talk about that for, for ages. You mentioned a little bit earlier your upbringing about moral distress and moral injury. And it's been cited as a major cause of burnout amongst healthcare staff. Dig into that a little bit further, not from your personal perspective, you, you've referenced that, but what other people might experience. Absolutely right, uh, Jonathan. Moral distress is a very important um, cause of burnout. So the definition of moral distress includes the situation where a healthcare professional is unable to provide the care that they want or that they believe is right for their patient. And so there can be many circumstances or permutations of this, this situation. It's interesting that many of us assume that this is a resource-related thing, that I'm unable to provide this care because I do not have the resources to do so. Um, that is very, very true, and that, that does happen a lot. However, in, in, in a UK or a Western healthcare setting, it is the opposite, that actually we have the provisions to provide this care, but due to system and organization or culture that actually we do too much. And so this can, and uh, the, the literature which shows about the high rates of moral distress come from nursing staff in intensive care settings, where perhaps in the face of medical futility, too much is done leading to moral distress or moral injury. So I'd like to change tack a little bit. You're, you're passionate about promoting the welfare and safeguarding of children. How has your work impacted the field of, uh, of pediatrics and what, what remains to be done? My, I mean, my, my motivation or my role as a pediatrician is to help children be the best, best version of their genetic potential. And so, of course, this starts preconception and the health and well-being of parents of children and, of course, those who work with them, such as teachers. But it's important that part of that development of a child is to protect them from serious harm. And harm can come to children both accidentally, but also in non-accidental ways. And so I reflect about my own experiences of non-accidental harm and the opportunities to recognize this that were missed by my educational providers as well as my healthcare providers. And so if you think about non-accidental harm, I mean, child abuse is an adverse childhood experience. And it is well recognized that adverse childhood experiences such as child abuse 
can lead to poorer outcomes in health, educational attainment, and employment for people affected by abuse. So again, going back to the artificial categories, well-being, um, like well-being, abuse can be categorized into four areas, physical abuse, emotional, sexual abuse, and neglect. But again, it is a complex interplay with lots and lots of overlay. It is very rare that, that child abuse presents as barn door or, or, or boxes ticked abuse. Going back to Sherlock Holmes, it is about having that professional curiosity. So child abuse may be far more prevalent than we think in, in the case of pediatrics. Is that recurrent abdominal pain or those constant headaches really a symptom for something else? So like a plant, children need warmth, nutrition, shelter, education, and importantly, protection from threats to their growth and their development so that they can grow into the adults, well-functioning adults of our future. And of course, as a society, of course, as a society, yes, of course, protect the, uh, the individual, but one harmed child um, revisits the grief for succeeding generations and we as a society should be judged about how our children are protected. So um, again, changing tack, God, there's so many things we could talk about. You're a musician yourself. How can activities such as music impact well-being and how important are they to ensure clinicians' well-being? Oh, really, really important. So um, in, in, in a children's hospital, we have many music therapists. So again, children need to be stimulated. They need to be engaged. And, um, and play is an important part of, of therapy and treatment and healing. And there is a lot of evidence to suggest that, that music can help in improved cognitive function. It can help in um, helping people heal after surgery. And of course, the positive impacts on, on, on mental health. So using music in the healthcare environment, it can be very beneficial to patients. But of course, that directly impacts on staff because it allows for, for example, a painful procedure to take place more uh, uh, more easily. So for example, putting a, a cannula in, into a distressed child with, with, with the music that they like might be distracting and very effective. Of course, thinking about, uh, about staff, I mean, uh, Jonathan, you're a surgeon, I'm sure you, you can... Uh, you know colleagues or maybe even yourself who perhaps doing elective operations have music playing in in an operating theater and um but i want to kind of be more ambitious and say could we use music in emergency scenarios where people high have high levels of stress and i can give an example of one christmas in a in, a, in an emergency department where a teenager came in with a life-threatening arrhythmia requiring uh, endotracheal intubation and cardioversion and um of course the team were assembled and getting things ready to prepare to intubate this child and um there were two of my co consultant colleagues present and i was thinking well too many cooks will spoil the soup but what can i do to make this more creative and it's around christmas and we had all lots of christmas musicians and and keyboards and things around so i went into and asked the family um what music what christmas music do you like and the kid who was uh, you know gasping for breath kind of pointed at his mother to say ask her and the and the father was you know almost in tears but the mother said could you play oh come all ye faithful and so i stood outside the consultant in the emergency department playing oh come all ye faithful while the, while the resuscitation team um intubated this child and cardioverted them before sending them to intensive care and the level of calmness in the room was phenomenal because people were listening to the music and listening to each other and there was less panic and so i really think that there is a great scope for using music in more 
acute settings, not just in elective procedures. It's interesting. As a surgeon, I had my opening music. The music would play at the beginning of the operation. I had, and that tended to be something, you know, kind of hard and driving. Uh, then I had the music that played whilst I was operating, usually some Stan Getz or some Chopin. And then I had my closing music, like at the end of the operation, like a little bit of extra energy. So, yeah, I'm, and music, you know, if you're driving in the car, if it's something like it's a sunny day and you've got the Beach Boys on, you just feel full of the joys of spring. It's, um, yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated. I've, I've got to learn more about it. There's a, there's a whole podcast there. Now, as we reach the end, finally, if you were granted three wishes to improve global healthcare or healthcare within your remit, what would those wishes be? Of course, I, I, I feel very, very strongly about, uh, of course, non-communicable diseases as well as communicable diseases. And so I think clean access to clean water supply that is is absolutely fundamental going back to what children need they need to be fed watered you know clean water supply absolutely essential uh, second one i would say would be the kind of universal access to you know life-saving interventions like vaccinations but vaccinations that are relevant to the populations that that that, that are being served and then my third wish would be that there should be a commitment from those who have money, who have the resource to support the delivery of the basics in healthcare, including healthcare education. So, the, so going back to my work experience for UNICEF, if you educate women, if you make girls literate, they are more likely to understand healthcare information. They are more likely to vaccinate their child. They are more likely to um, look after their children when they're sick, reducing time off work and contributing to the economy. So, you know, having clean water access to vaccinations and the money and the commitment from those in uh, with the influence and the financial influence to do this, I think that will be a good grounding. Doing the basics brilliantly, that's what we need. In this interconnected world, you know, being kind to one is kind to all. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for on this episode of the EMJ podcast. It was an absolute pleasure to have you with us today, Dr. Lalith Vijay Duru. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating. Can't wait to have you back. Thank you very much for this opportunity and I'd like to wish everyone at EMJ and their listeners um, to think about their own story and to think about how they can be kind to others and kind to themselves. Love it. So folks, please make sure you subscribe so you never miss another episode of the EMJ podcast and check out the archives for many more great episodes with fabulous and fascinating guests. And please tune in next week for our next episode with me, your host, Jonathan Sakia. Until then, please stay safe, stay well, stay curious, and to reflect on what Lal says, be kind. Bye for now. <laughs>